Well, good morning. Uh, yeah, I'm Brad Gray. Uh, probably a new face or new name to you. Actually, I've been writing uh, for Christ Holds Fast or 1517 now for about seven years. I met Dan back in the OG days of Christ Holds Fast Orlando, and I've just been really thankful to uh, be a part of the mission of writing about Christ for you for all those years. And it's just an honor to be here. Yes. As has been joked about already, I'm the second token Baptist. Uh, However, uh, Ken Jones once called me the most Lutheran Baptist he's ever met. So take that for whatever it's worth. (laughs) Um, Some of what I'm going to share with you this morning is going to come from my book, uh, Finding God in the Darkness. So I'm happy to do that. And I will say from the outset, I am unapologetically a preacher. uh, So if I start getting really preachy, just know that going into it. The scripture I'll be dealing with comes from the book of Job. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, uh, feel free to do so. Job chapter 19. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses for you. Uh, Job chapter 19 and verse 23. Job says this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my earth Or, excuse me, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Parachuting into Job 19 might seem a little bit odd. since It can kind of feel as if we are eavesdropping or sort of interrupting a conversation that has started well before we have arrived. And for the most part, that's true. Job 19 is Job speaking at what roughly be the halfway point of the discussion that he and his so-called friends have been having for quite some time. I'm sure if you're familiar with scripture, you are familiar with Job's story. Job's life is a life that has been completely turned upside down and turned, we could say, into rubble. All of his assets, all of his securities, all of his posterity are gone. They are wiped out. And as we learn from chapter 2, Job is left with basically next to nothing. Save for some loathsome sores, as it says in 2.7. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And even further, some gnarly, nasty scars that are covering his body as he took bits of pottery and scraped and cut his arms to deal with the cavity of suffering that had swallowed him as he tried to numb the pain. Job's life was completely wrecked. And ruined. And worst of all, he had no idea why. Job was completely in the dark on why this horrendous season of life had come and sprung up upon him. But the fascinating thing is, if you read the book of Job, you and I know from the outset. If you read the first two chapters, we are told why, from the very get-go why this horrendous squall of suffering has descended upon Job as Satan, the adversary, wagers twice that if he touches Job's life or touches Job's health, he can get Job to curse God to his face. Job, of course, is unaware of all that. He has no idea that that has happened in the heavens. So for all Job knows, he's just enduring a series of terrible, no, horrible, no good, very bad days. That's all he knows. 
And if you know the story, Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, eventually arrive. And they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. Which I would like to wager is essentially the only thing that they ever got right in the whole book. In their company... Job proceeds to give vent to a series of just devastating confessions. If you read chapter 3, it is gut-wrenching and even eyebrow-raising. As he says, he, he curses the day that he was conceived. He bemoans the dread and the gloom that had consumed him. And so severe is his grief, in fact, that he wishes... That he could go back to the day that he was delivered from his mother's womb and just die on the spot. That's how horrendous he was feeling. And he's pouring out his pain in the company of his friends. And that's when his friends decide to open up their mouths. And they decide that it's up for them to discern. Let's, let's decipher the reasons behind their neighbor's suffering. And essentially, that's what makes Job so tedious, in fact, is that for 40-odd chapters, you're essentially reading a collection of conversations, a back and forth between Job and some friends who have determined that it is, it is their responsibility to, to figure out what brought about their friend's horrendous ordeal, almost like Sherlock, sifting through clues. They are sifting through all of their friend's sorrow. And the logic of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar runs that, Job, you must have done something wrong. You, you must have done something amiss to uh, perturb the gods. Otherwise, the gods would not be treating you this way. Otherwise, they would not be giving you such a raw deal. After all, no one, no one suffers for being innocent, right? And in fact... Eliphaz puts this quite blatantly in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, Those who plow in iniquity and sow in trouble reap the same. So essentially, sin plus strife equals sorrow. So of course, Job, what did you do? You must be guilty of something. You're suffering sorrow. What did you do? You're just getting what you deserved is what they claim. A claim which I have no doubt made all of Job's agony all the more agonizing. And the rest of Job, by the way, just goes on like this for quite some time. As Job's friends essentially prosecute Job's suffering to try and uncover where he went wrong. What would you do, Job? And so by the time we get to chapter 19, we find a Job who has essentially lost all of his patience. <laughs> He has at his wit's end with his so-called friends and their so-called help, which leads him to sort of unload on them. In chapter 18, his, his buddy Bildad has just finished up a very lengthy and very laborious description of what it looks like for someone who doesn't know God for 20-odd verses. And then the inference is, it's kind of describing you, Job. You must not know the Lord. And this leads Job to sort of unleash all of this pent-up grief and all of this pent-up anguish on his friends. And even, I might be so bold to say, on his God too. He says in Job 19 verse 2, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? 
And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. And he continues for several verses, Job does, rehearsing his grief. And we learn that he sees this whole predicament, this whole problem of pain, if you will, as being one that was handed to him by none other than God himself. As he just says, God has put me in the wrong. The culprit as Job sees it, the culprit behind all of his calamity was none other than God himself. A very alarming allegation that sounds frighteningly true in light of all of this this appalling description that he gives of all of this despair that he has just endured. And if you read from about 7, verse 7 to about verse 12, he describes how he was crying out in anguish and pain, and there was no answer. He was all alone in the darkness, stripped of glory, destitute of everything that had once given him security, that had once given him standing, that had once given him safety. And he says in verse 10, my life is now completely upended, pulled up like a tree, uprooted. That's the violent image that Job has of his own life. As all of those familiar things that Job was anchored in, were now no more. They were nothing now but just a mangled mess, leaving leaving him with essentially nothing to do but just sit in the rubble and cry. Because everywhere he looks, he finds new evidence of God's seeming ferocity. That's what he finds. That's what he finds when he looks around at his life. You see, from Job's perspective, he believed that he had been caught somehow in the crosshairs of his maker's wrath. And as he details in verses 11 and 12, all of these new ingredients of suffering, it's almost like he's being besieged by battle-hardened soldiers. And to make even things even worse, if you can think that it gets worse, in verses 13 through 19, he describes how he has been forced to watch as each of his relationships... Those uh, places of comfort that he should have found solace in have slowly decayed. His brothers have grown distant. His relatives have failed him. His friends have forgotten him. And even his wife's own love has gone painstakingly cold. So now Job is not just a sufferer, but he's a sufferer alone. A stranger in his own home, so to speak, with no comfort to speak of, no sort of comfort to speak of at all. And in fact, he says at the very, at the very middle in verse number 20 that he's basically hanging on by the skin of his teeth. He says essentially, verse 20, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Now, perhaps you're wondering why I am taking you through all of this. This, this kind of sucks, Brad. And I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, especially not before lunch. But I think, though, this glimpse at Job's suffering, this nightmare suffering, if you will, actually helps us see what a sufferer's only hope truly is. 
That's a good question to answer, right? What does it look like? What does it sound like for sufferers to have hope? Where even should we who are going through an ordeal, a horrendous ordeal, when it feels like we have been given the short straw, so to speak, where should we look for consolation when we're in that dark night of the soul? Instinctually, I think we often resort to Offering, like Job's friends, an abundance of reasons and and explanations and answers that will uh, supposedly, we think, help us make sense of suffering. This happened because of this, and that's why you're getting this. Job's posture, though, shows us something completely different. Shows us something, indeed, quite different. Because instead of reasons and instead of explanations... Job's hope in the midst of all of that suffering is tethered to something much truer and much better. Namely, a living redeemer whom he says he will one day see in the flesh. Again, verse 25, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh i shall i shall see god whom i shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold him and not another Wonderful confession that he gives. And I would like to submit at this point that much of modern scholarship has failed us on this particular point. Miserably so. If you were to take the time, and I don't recommend, you can if you want to. If you were to take the time to scour the journals of academia or sort of go to the commentaries of many learned theologians, as I have done, uh, you would be greeted by an array of very meticulated, expressed reasons why this sudden burst of hope, I know that my Redeemer lives, that burst of hope is in fact not a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus, to the Christ. So therefore, Job's lowercase redeemer, if you will, they say is merely just a reference to some other relative and Job's family, so to speak. Some perhaps distant relation, this person would take up the role as Job's kinsman redeemer, preserving his name and legacy from eternal ruin. So they say, these scholars, they would tell you that this person that Job is hoping in is really just an executor on Job's estate. One who would ensure that Job's epitaph, the epitaph of his life, wouldn't be plagued by all of the suffering and the sorrow that that ruined his final days. And I would like to say here, with everything that's holy in me, I don't really care much for what academia says on this particular point. And in fact, I, I would rather co-sign what a late 1800s Episcopal theologian by the name of J.I. Mombert says on this very text, what he says, quote, I cannot resist the conviction that this passage is decidedly eschatological and stands out in solitary grandeur as an ancient prophecy or poetic vision of a resurrection, indeed. The opinion, I would Submit that Job's surge of hope has nothing to do with a future heaven-sent capital redeemer. I think is untenable and ultimately unhopeful. 
I think it actually undercuts this confession entirely and it warps it from being this guttural, albeit hopeful, lament into nothing more than just a self-interested shriek. Save my name, essentially, is what they have made this confession into. So, uh, set aside for a moment the fact that most, if not all, of the early church fathers interpreted and understood Job's to Redeemer to be indeed none but Christ, including Clement and Origen and Augustine, Jerome, and the like. Contending otherwise just doesn't track with the faith once delivered to the saints. Because, of course, you perhaps know that since the days of Adam and that fateful afternoon in the garden, those who belong to God have always been bundled up by the promise that a Redeemer would come and crush the serpent's head. That's what they believed. And the vindication of every suffering and sorrowful sinner then has always been tied to this one who would come to set everything right by enduring violence on their behalf. That's what their hope is. Therefore, we can say this, that whatever, whatever Job knew or believed when he cried, I know my Redeemer lives, I think he knew that in part. He knew his Redeemer, to quote a 19th century speaker, he knew his Redeemer only in the dim distance of remote history. Or to use the words of the Hebrew writer, applied to Abraham, but we can apply them to Job, that Job saw his hope from afar. All of which I say, I would say that Job's rhapsody of hope here, that I know my Redeemer lives, I would say only, only makes sense in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead. This is the essence of his confession and his trust. I won't uh, proceed to say that this this prayer is in some way a, a prophecy of the resurrection to say, but I would say it is decidedly and unmistakably downstream, if I can say this, of an indirect myth of a resurrection. And it's precisely, I would say, that a myth of a resurrection that has filled the people of God with hope despite all of their appalling and hopeless circumstances. This is where we get to Lewis. Because you see, C.S. Lewis attributes his Christian faith to the understanding of the fact that the gospel is simply a true myth, as Sam so eloquently stated last night. In a letter to the Anglican bishop and Lewis's longtime correspondent, Arthur Greaves, this is what Lewis says, quote, What Hugo Dyson and Tolkien showed me was that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. If I met the idea of a god sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. The idea of the dying and reviving God similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except in the Gospels. The reason was that in the pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond what my grasp, even though I could not say in cold prose what it meant. And the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. You see, Lewis's epiphany of 
the true myth, so to speak, I think it's very reminiscent of Job's sort of eruption of hope in this mythic redeemer that he is clinging to in his worst moments, this moment of brokenness, this one that he was trusting in would one day put all of that brokenness back together again. Now, a word or two is, I think, warranted in order to clarify what Lewis means by myth. And I'm not going to steal from Sam again. But oftentimes, a straight line is immediately drawn from myths and fables, leading many of us to associate myths with other fictional stories or epic sagas or fairy tales, so to speak. But properly speaking, a myth is, uh, ought not to be discarded wholesale simply because of its mythic qualities. L- Lewis writes in his treatise on miracles, quote, Myth is not merely misunderstood history, nor diabolical illusion, nor priestly lying, but at its best, myth is a real, though unfocused gleam of divine truth falling on human imagination. Understood that way then, a myth is simply a revelation of the divine that has been transmitted through human narratives and very, we could say, tangible stories. So a correlation then, as Lewis has just made, between faith and myth shouldn't catch us off guard. It shouldn't throw us off as much as it might first, might at first. Because those who... Believe in the gospel of God, Lewis, has said, Lewis says elsewhere, quote, must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on their theology. So going back to Job then. Job's faith that he's just confessed here. I know my Redeemer lives. However feebly he was clinging to the hope that his vindicator, his Redeemer, was not only alive, but was even at that moment standing for him and standing on his behalf. And even if he couldn't make sense of it all, there was one that he was trusting and believing in, one who could make sense of it all, and one day would. And eventually, as he says, he would see that Redeemer With his own eyes, I shall see him for myself. And even as he goes on to say, not as another, not as a stranger, but as a friend. You see, this is the hope beyond hope that gives peace to every disheveled sufferer. It's the hope of a friendly face that greets us and draws near to us in the midst of all of our suffering and our sorrow. And my friends, that face is none other than the face of Christ, your Redeemer. The pain and the sorrow and the agony and the loss that you and I endure here east of Eden is all too real. And we should never pretend that it is. But as, just as real as our suffering is, there is a very real person who meets us in the midst of it. It is Christ himself who shows up to be for you and to be with you in the worst of your troubles and tribulations through the word and the spirit. That's who Jesus is. Your incarnate sufferer. The one who takes all of your sorrow and your grief and he absorbs it as his own. He, in fact, is the God that has taken on a body in order that he, as it says in Hebrews, might taste death for everyone. And thereby free us from death through his resurrection. To borrow from Lewis again, the gospel, we can understand it this way. 
is essentially the good news that the myth of Job's Redeemer has become a fact in the battered and bruised face of the suffering God. He says in an essay called Myth Become Fact, quote, as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be a myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. And if I might be so bold to add, not just the earth of history, he comes down to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, what makes the gospel so remarkable is that For anyone who is caught in the throes of suffering and sorrow and loss is that it does not appeal to some far off or faceless force for you to trust in. Christian hope is decidedly not vague. It is incarnate. It is hope that lives. It is hope that breathes. It is hope indeed that bleeds out for you. Christian hope is wedded To the sublime fact, as Lewis says, that God really has dived down into the bottom of creation and has come up bringing the whole redeemed nature on his shoulder. That's what the good news tells you. That there is a person upon whom you can fall during the severest bouts of stress and worry and fear and depression and doubt. A person who will never, ever turn you away. A person whose arms are perpetually open to you, welcoming you as the father welcomes the prodigal. During a 2019 sermon at Washington, D.C.'s National Cathedral, the late American writer and journalist Michael Gerson concluded that sermon by saying this, quote, At the end of all of our striving and longing, We find not a force, but a face. All language about God is metaphorical, but the metaphor became flesh and dwelt among us. Indeed, I think this is the hopeful note that echoes throughout our lives in the gospel. From St. John to C.S. Lewis, Christian hope is summed up in that. The metaphor became a man. The myth became a fact and lowered himself to our place in the dirt and in distress in order to deliver us from out of it all. This just means that the enduring mystery of the gospel is not ambiguous, nor is it cryptic. It's the blessed fact that even in seasons of doubt and despair and depression, that the rumor of grace is whispered in our ears by a living person, by the very one who is the epitome and the embodiment of the heart of the Father. By none other than the word become flesh. Therefore, what, whatever theoretical or, or real nightmares to which you succumb in suffering. Christian faith offers something wholly different. Not a force, but a face. Not a philosophy, but a person. And not a myth alone, but a myth become fact. And suffering and loss and and doubt and despair and depression and death and all the things that make us familiarize ourselves with Job's predicament. Faith 
And the gospel binds us to the one who has swallowed all of that on himself. Subsumed all of that on himself. On the cross. And this therefore frees us. What are we to do with our grief? With all of these tears that we have welling up inside of us? We cry and we pray and we scream and we shout and we let it all flow. Why? Because we can know that the God of heaven has come down to this place in the dirt to catch all of our tears. And one day wipe them all away. This is his word of promise. My friends, the good news is the myth became fact in the person of Jesus, who is the embodiment of God's concern for you, God's care for you. What is man that thou art mindful of him? It is Christ. He is the mindfulness of your misery. And even now, he is concerned precisely for you. And he is, he, he is even at this moment keeping you forever by his grace. And that's a fact. Amen.